Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The gospel lesson for today is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This can be found on page 1053 of your Pew Bible. John begins his gospel by stating that our Lord Jesus, referred to as the Word, was present and active in the creation of the world as the unique Son of God. Taking on human flesh, Jesus lived among mankind, revealing to us the radiance of God's glory and offering an invitation to become children of God. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Two Saturdays ago, I was at Costco. I don't know why I went to Costco on a Saturday, but there I was. <laughs> and the line to check out was longer than I had ever seen it before. If you know the Costco in Port Chester, it went all the way from where the cash registers are all the way back to the escalator in the back of the building. It was really bad. I was standing there in line, you know, just trying to stay centered and peaceful, <laughs> waiting in line. And uh, this man started coming out one of the aisles towards the line. He had a full cart, and he was moving real fast, and he got right up to where I was in the line. And he saw me, and he looked like this, and he turned to me, and he said, is this the line? <laughs> and I said, yes, it is. And, and he looked like, you know, in the cartoons when the tea kettle is just building up and it's about to explode? <laughs> and he did explode, and he said something very interesting when he realized the line was that long. He looked right at me, looking right at me. He said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he turned his card and went to the back of the line. 
I was really stunned, actually. I was thinking to myself, how can someone, how can Jesus be so regarded by some and so disregarded by others? How can someone be such a blessing to me and yet his name be used as a curse word by others? And I was thinking about this as I had my 20 more minutes in line (laughs) to contemplate all of it. And I was thinking, you know, it's really always been this way. People have either worshipped him or killed him. They've either followed him or just dismissed him altogether. And I was thinking about what Jesus means to me. And I was thinking about that man who was now at the end of the line. And there was a part of me, I didn't do this, but there was a part of me that wanted to leave my cart right where it was and go back and find that man and tell him all about Jesus Christ. There's that song. It started coming into my mind as I was in line. I don't know if you guys know this song. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Anyone know that song? Let my Jesus change your life. Hallelujah. No? No one? No one else? I thought at least you could sing with me, Gina. I wanted to go back and tell him all about the real Jesus Christ. We're in our second week of the series on the Apostles' Creed here in the season of Lent. Last week, we looked at the first two lines. If you can pull up the whole Apostles' Creed here on the slide. We looked at that first section. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And today, it's my task to preach on that entire middle section, all about Jesus. Hope you have no more plans for today. I'll be here a while. No, next Sunday, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Gina will be preaching on that. Who better to preach on the Holy Spirit? I can't wait. You get one line. I have all that middle section. That's our task today. We're going to attempt to tackle the whole Jesus section. Before we dive into it, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, in these next few minutes, would reveal yourself to us. We're going to go through all these lines of the Apostles' Creed, all these statements about you, theology about you. But if we miss you, you, we will have missed a real opportunity. So come, let us behold you, Lord Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as the early Christians tried to answer that question as they moved out into the pre-Christian culture in which they lived, and as they met people and worked with people and lived next to people, and those people said, what do you believe? And they tried to answer that question. Obviously, there was a lot to say about Jesus. That's why he's the biggest section of the Apostles' Creed. And what did they want to share with these people? The same things I wanted to share with the man in the back of the line at Costco. They said, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ. That word Christ is simply a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, Messiah or Messiah. It means anointed one, the one that God set apart to accomplish his special great purposes in this world. Jesus, Yeshua, it's a Hebrew word that means salvation. What is God's great purpose for Jesus, his anointed one in this world? Salvation, that he entered into the world to save us. I believe in Jesus Christ, the anointed Savior, God's only Son. 
Why does it say God's only son? That phrase probably carried a little bit more weight in the ancient world than it does for us. God's only son. In the ancient world, when parents had sons, it was exceedingly important because your sons were your future. They were going to be able-bodied workers after your body could no longer work. In other words, they were your retirement package. They were your 401k. They would keep you going after you couldn't work anymore, but they also would carry on the family name. Without sons, you would, you would be cut off, basically, from the lineage. And so for a father to give up his only son would be very sacrificial even for the father. God's only son. And that word only is important as well. What we're saying here as Christians is we're saying there's really only one savior. There is no other. There's no other divine presence in this world that you can seek salvation from. Jesus Christ is God's only son, our Lord, our Lord. We're going to come back to that concept of lordship when we look at a later phrase in this section that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So hold that. We'll come back to it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. What this means is that Jesus was unique in all of history. Everybody who was ever born before him was conceived by a biological father, a biological human father, and a biological human mother. But Jesus comes along and he's conceived in a different way. Human mother, divine father, the Holy Spirit allowed Mary to conceive. What this means is that Jesus was different than every human being who ever came before him. He was fully God and fully human. He's fully God and fully human. This is going to become exceedingly important when he dies on the cross. Why? Well, because what happened on the cross is that Jesus was a representative of all of mankind. And he was serving as the atonement for all of our sins, all the ways that we have sinned against the Father. Jesus said, I will go. I'll be the representative of all of humanity, and I will pay the price for all of their sins. I'll receive the consequences, which is death, according to the law of God, of all of the sins of humanity. There's only one problem with that. If he's fully human, if it's just you or me who tried to go to the cross as a representative of all of humanity, we'd have a problem, which is that we can't afford the price to appease God. We can't afford the price to appease God because there's a difference in being between all of humanity and God. We call this ontology. That word ontology just means the nature of being. We have a different nature of being as humanity than God does. He is the creator. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence, and we are the creation. It'd be like a a bunch of ants on an ant farm who have offended me walking by on the sidewalk. And they get together and they think, how can we pay back Pastor Nathan? There's no chance that they would ever be able to come up with enough to pay me back if they've offended me. See, we are humans. We are this ontology. God is God. He is this ontology. There's nothing we can pull together to afford to appease him. We looked at that word propitiation last week. 
It just means appeasement. How can we appease God, the creator of the universe? We can't, unless our representative, the one who went to the cross for us to take the consequences of our sin is fully human to represent all of us, but also fully God. So that when his blood is spilled, it's the most precious commodity in the entire universe because it's divine blood too. And he can afford the price necessary to appease the wrath of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully human. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Matthew 27 verse 2 mentions... Pilate, as well as a few other places in the Gospels, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Pilate is also the one who would have a little interaction with Jesus, and he's the one who said to Jesus, what is truth? Who was Pilate? Pilate was the governor or the prefect assigned by Rome. He was a Roman leader. He was assigned over the region of Judea at the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire had spread by this point, and we know from the Gospels especially that the Romans uh, were occupying Israel. And Pontius Pilate was the one in charge from Rome over this region. He was the prefect or the governor. We have this stone that they discovered with his name on it. It just lists his place uh, in his command. You see that? You go to the next slide here. And just go to one more, Max, we can see it a little more clearly. Pilatus, you see that? It's written in Latin. The word before it, it would be Pontius. And the word above this references Tiberius Caesar. He's the Caesar while Jesus was on earth. And Pilate is the governor over Judea. And underneath here, it mentions Judea. So this is a stone that was unearthed uh, some decades ago. You can go see it in the museum in Israel now. And then they discovered something else in, 19, uh, in 19, 2018, actually, a little copper ring with his name on it as well. The New York Times covered this, article, this uh, fact. They found it at the Herodian. If you've traveled to Israel with Dr. Woodman, you've been to the Herodian. They found this copper ring with his name on it. Now, you might be wondering, why am I taking all the time to explain all of this? And you might be wondering why Pontius Pilate's name is in the Apostles' Creed. Of all the names that would make it in, we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, obviously their names are going to make it in. And you might think, as we explain to an unbelieving world what we believe, we might mention some of the other people from the Old Testament as well. Moses, for example, seems pretty important. Abraham, Rachel, Sarah, Leah, any of these people, maybe even Adam and Eve, none of them make the list. But Pontius Pilate does. Why? Well, I think it's important that early believers wanted to situate the person of Jesus in real history. Pontius Pilate was a real person. There's a false dichotomy that some people make, including Christians. It's, it's like we have all the facts of history, all the things you can measure and all the things you can qualify and quantify. And then you have faith. You have facts and then you have faith, the mythology. And we've made this false dichotomy where there's empirical data and evidence, and then there's the things of faith. You just have to believe it. This is a false dichotomy. And Pontius Pilate's presence in the Apostles' Creed tells us that. 
Jesus is not just some myth. It's not just something that we believe outside of all the normal things that you can measure and quantify in history. No, he really lived. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know Pontius Pilate, don't you? The Roman prefect over the region of Judea. He's a real person. He's in history. The New York Times covered him. He's got a Wikipedia page. Your kids learn about him in history class. It's real. It's not facts and then faith. It's all one cosmology. Jesus really lived. He was really here. I hear this language sometimes, even from Christians. You know, I have faith. and or Actually, I fear that it's even worse. Now, a lot of times people base their beliefs on their feelings, not even just the faith. You know, I just, I believe in Jesus because of how he makes me feel. Nope. The facts inform our feelings and our faith, not the other way around. This is going to become very important because of the next three lines in the Apostles' Creed. If we believe that Jesus is real, it's not some myth, it's not a mythology, it's not just how he makes us feel, it's not even religious experience or transformation, but fact in history, then the next three lines become very important for our beliefs. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He was crucified. Crucifixion was used by the Romans basically to snuff someone out as if they never even existed. Just get rid of them entirely. That's why the Romans did it. It was the worst kind of humiliation and punishment they could come up with. The Jews also had a view of crucifixion. God's law said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So they viewed crucifixion as a curse. Jesus was crucified. The world tried to snuff him out. And his own religious people said, he's bearing the curse. He was crucified. It really happened in history. He died. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. His disciples didn't make it up. He didn't fake a death. He died in history. The world rejected him and he bore the curse, the curse of the law. The curse of the law says that anybody who sins against God has offended God and is cursed, is forsaken, deserves the wrath of God. And Jesus, as the God-man, said, I will be the representative. I will go to the cross. I will be cursed upon the tree so that they don't have to be. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. You see how important that is, that it actually happened in history? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He did this for you, and he did this for me. Our faith is not built on our feelings, but on the fact of his death. He descended to the dead. Is anyone curious what that's about? He descended to the dead, or in other translations, they say he descended to hell. What is that? When Jesus died on the cross and was buried, what happened? Well, in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, by the way, I've printed out a few things. Pastor Heather's sitting next to him. I've printed out a few Bible verses that go that support each line of, of this section of the Apostles' Creed. If you're curious about it, you can pick that up after the service. But in 1 Peter, it says that Jesus went down in his death, to the prison. And he released the prisoners. Who is that talking about? 
probably the Old Testament people who had gone before him, people who were eagerly anticipating the Messiah, but who never got to witness Jesus. They were in some kind of prison. They needed to be released from there by beholding Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the belief is that he went down to the dead. Theologians call this the bosom of Abraham. And he went down to Abraham and Moses and all these people who had gone before, and he revealed himself to them and unlocked the prison so that they could enter glory. That's what it means he descended to the dead. The other translation that he descended to hell is basically realizing what he experienced on the cross. If it's true that he bore the curse, then he received the full blunt force of the righteous wrath of God. He experienced the forsakenness that our sins deserve. And what is the definition of hell? But separation from God. He descended to hell. In Isaiah 53, it talks about how he was made his grave with the wicked. So did he descend to the dead or did he descend to hell? Work it out in your life groups this week. Have that discussion. Talk about that with each other in your life groups. Why does it matter? What problems arise when you think about Jesus, the son, being separated from the father? What happens in the Trinity if he's separated? Discuss this. He descended to the dead. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Week after week here at church, when we say the Apostles' Creed, when we get to that line, my spirit leaps within me. On the third day, he rose again. You know what this means? This means that in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus has solved the two biggest problems in our lives. He has dealt with the two biggest problems we face. What are the two biggest problems? Guilt and death. Did you know those are your two biggest problems? Guilt and death. Our sin makes us guilty and we will have no chance of standing before the judgment seat if we're guilty. But when he died on the cross, he dealt with our guilt. He bore the curse. He bore our sins. And in his resurrection, he conquered, he dealt with, he solved our second biggest problem, which is death. That we're all going to die. Well, he's victorious over death, which means we will rise with him one day. On the third day, he rose from the dead, our two biggest problems have been solved. This is what I wanted to run back to the guy at the back of the Costco line and tell him about. You think this line at Costco is a problem? Wait till you hear about your guilt <laughs> and your unavoidable death. And this name that came out like a cuss word is the solution to those problems. Jesus. Christ, let me tell you about my Jesus. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That phrase, right hand, again, means something more probably to people in the ancient world. They'd recognize that right away. If a king is seated upon his throne, and if somebody's seated at his right hand, that's an indication of equal authority. If you're at the right hand of the king, you have equal authority. Remember last week we saw God, the Father, almighty creator of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke every 
atom of matter into existence. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. It is seated at his right hand. That means he's the authority above all authorities. He ascended into heaven. We talk about the major Christ events, and we sometimes forget the importance of the ascension. You know, we talk about his his birth. These are the big five Christ events. His birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. These are the five most important events in human history. The birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and his coming return. Somebody after the 9 a.m. said, this is interesting because there's this big trough between the ascension and the coming return. They were living in this trough right here. But his ascension is super important. I think if we were going to try to rank the Christ events, we might think, well, his crucifixion obviously is like number one, right? His resurrection. We forget sometimes his ascension is of equal importance. Why? Because it means he's returned to his rightful position in the universe. Where is that? At the right hand of the Father. I love the way the Apostle Paul describes it. In Ephesians 1, verse 19 and following, it's a big, long, run-on sentence. We're joining in the middle of it. The Apostle wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You see what this means? Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's the name above every name, the authority above every authority. This means we can be less insecure about who's in the White House or who's in the Senate or who your boss is, or anybody who you think has power over you, guess what? They exist under the authority of Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the name above every name. He is our Lord. He is our King above all other things that go on in this world. Everything that happens, even all the evil in this world, happens under his sovereign hand. He's in charge. He's our Lord. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to judge us and all those who've gone before us. Because he's in charge of all things, he's going to deal with all things. Someone who's wronged you, God will judge him. Someone who rejects Jesus, God will judge him. Jesus will come back and judge the person who's wronged you. And he will come back and judge you. And me. And our only hope on that day is going to be if we hide behind the cross and say, he bore the curse for me. There but by your grace, Lord Jesus, go I. We will either bless him in that moment or curse him. We will either regard him 
or disregard him. That's the way it works all throughout history. They either worshiped him or they put him on the cross. We either accept what he did for us or we say, I'll do it my way. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. People talk about, they ask this question, do you have a personal relationship with with Jesus? And every time I hear that, I think, you know, he's going to come back and judge the living and the dead. That's going to be a personal experience. You're going to have a personal relationship with Jesus on that day. It's going to get personal. So if you think you don't have a personal relationship with it, you might as well start now. Because he will come back to judge all of us. And maybe there's somebody hearing everything that you've just heard about where he is in, in the universe after his ascension. And, and maybe you've thought about Jesus. Maybe you've come to this church or others and you've thought about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who saved you. But maybe you haven't thought about him as Lord. If he's our Lord, if he really is seated at the right hand of the Father, if that's where his position is in the universe, and he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead, it means he's our Lord, and that means whatever he says goes. He tells us to love those who are hard to love. He tells us to turn the other cheek. We do it. You can argue with the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you about my Jesus. So during the series, I said we would end each sermon, and I would just ask you, now that we've unpacked some of the meaning in each of these phrases, I'd like to ask you this question, Christian, what do you believe? And we'll just answer the part that we dealt with today. And I want you to really mean these words from your heart, not as a rote memorization, but as a firm answer, believing the facts of Jesus Christ. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.